This morning my heart is filled with joy and expectancy um, as I share this word. I'm really trusting that there's life change in all of us as we hear the word of God. The word of God is powerful. Hebrews tells us that it's alive and active. So I want to encourage you as you hear this morning, as you listen to the word, always be in faith. Always be in faith that it will take root. It will be like seed that takes root in your heart and bears a hundredfold fruit. So I'm in joy. I'm in faith. I hope you are too. Yes, okay. So we've been talking about building a strategic prayer life, and we've looked at a number of uh, accounts in the Bible and lessons that we learn from uh, men and women of God who were great prayer warriors and um, things that we can emulate, things that we can learn from them. And I think the greatest example of all must be... Jesus, right? We haven't looked at Jesus yet. And so this morning we're going to look at the life of Jesus and what we can learn from his life. And many of these principles overlap. You'll see they overlap. Um, they, yeah, they're very similar. But I really want us to look at them and really reflect on our own lives and say, Lord, where do I need to change? I don't want this to be just a word that we listen to and we think, wow, that was nice or that wasn't nice or that part was good and that part I didn't enjoy. No, I don't when I want to say, Lord, as I compare myself to this mirror, which is your word, how do I want to change? I don't want us to listen and go away and be unchanged. Amen. So Jesus, what can we learn from Jesus? The first thing we can learn from Jesus is that he liked to pray in solitude early in the morning. Jesus liked to pray in solitude in the, early in the morning. I'm going to read from Mark 1. I'm going to read the context and then I'll read the verse that I get this principle from. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Does it say, so he had an intercessory prayer meeting and he called all the elders of the church and they had a, an all-night prayer meeting and then he tried to pray for her to get healed. No, he just went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. So he was in ministry mode. He just ministered, boom. And it was so natural. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Imagine that. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So the context of this is Jesus is in ministry. He's just ministering. He's going about his life. And the people who come by, who have needs to be met, he ministers to them and meets their needs. Then it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. It was early, it was dark, a solitary place, and he prayed. He didn't sleep. Sometimes I wake up early and it's dark and I go to a solitary place and I fall asleep. Okay, But he didn't do that. He woke up, he went there, and he prayed. And as I read through the whole book of Mark, I was reading through the book of Mark, and you know Mark, I love Mark, he's so action-oriented. He's like, and suddenly, and immediately, and straight away. And anyway, and as, as I was going through the book of Mark, I found it so fascinating that um, Jesus would be ministering, 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 and nowhere does it say that he was in prayer, but often you see Jesus woke up um, and he went to pray. Jesus withdrew and he went to pray. And I see that Jesus' relationship with the Father was much deeper than what we saw, what you can see um, with a natural eye. I think that his relationship with the Father, um, I've got a picture of an iceberg. Do you have it, Em? I think that 
from just from reading uh, the Gospels, and I encourage you to go and do it, his relationship with the Father and how deeply he related to God was everything under the sea, like an iceberg, nine-tenths of the iceberg under the sea. And what we see of his ministry was just a, sh a, sh a small expression of his relationship with the Father. And I think in the church today we fall short because we come so we become so busy with the ministry of our God. We become so caught up in the business of the day, whether it's running your own business, whether it's your corporate work, whether it's whatever, that we relegate our relationship with God to a corner. We relegate our prayer to a corner. Well, I'll you know pray for 10 minutes in the morning and then I'll go to Tuesday night prayer or I'll go to Ignite. And we relegate prayer and our relationship to that corner and then we live life. But that's not what I see when I look at Jesus. It's like early in the morning he prayed. There was a solid relationship with God and we're going to look at this more. And then out of that all the ministry flowed. He didn't get so caught up in the ministry that he forgot the God of the ministry. Amen. Okay. His ministry stems from his time alone with the Father and he seemed to get like to get up in the morning while it was dark and go someplace on his own. Okay. We can see this in Matthew 6. It's a lovely picture of this. He gives us a clue. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. They love to go to prayer meetings and pray the most long-winded prayers with the most excellent theology. They love to be seen by other people with their voice or their words or their eloquence. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But you, when you pray... Do you think Jesus did what he taught? But you, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think that Jesus did this a lot more than what is reflected in the, in the Gospels. He did this a lot. How about you and I? How about you? How about you? Is the major portion of your relating to the Father done in secret? done in your prayer closet or is it on Sunday morning in church is it in your ministry when people can see is it at a prayer meeting is it at cell group where is your the bulk of your relationship with God if God were to do an audit would the bulk of it be like that iceberg underneath where no one else sees but the father is the bulk of your worship what we see on Sunday here or is the bulk of your worship somewhere else that we don't even know about? And the Father who sees in secret is the one who will reward you. Okay. Do we relate to him via what we do? Do we relate to him via our ministry? You know, it's very easy as someone like, say, take myself for an example. I, the Holy Spirit speaks to me in a service. I have a sense, okay, he wants to do this. He's saying this to God's people, and it's not a burden. It's how he's graced me. Okay, the Holy Spirit is saying this. This is where we need to go. There's something happening there. And it happens because I'm graced like that. But I can't have my whole relationship based on my ministry and God speaking to me in ministry mode. Do you understand? It has to be much more. It's between me and him, where I can hear him saying to me in the middle of my dinner preparation, why are you so grumpy? Okay? It must be, it must be a relationship. So the first thing is Jesus loved to withdraw in solitary places while it was still dark before anyone was awake. The second thing is that Jesus often withdrew from the multitudes to spend time alone with them, even when he was being sought out by the multitudes. Luke 5, verse 15 to 16. 
However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and be healed of him by of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Often withdrew. What are your multitudes that pursue you? We've all got multitudes. We've all got multitudes. Are they your children, moms? Do you feel like you even go to the loo and you can't even have a peaceful moment in the loo? You can't even have a shower or a bath without bang, bang, bang. Mom, he whacked me. Mom, you know. What are your multitudes? Is it people at your work? Can you never switch off your phone? You know, sometimes we just never switch off our phone. And it, it, it's kind of like intrusive. It comes into everything in our prayer time and our relating time with our family. What are your multitudes? Is it tasks? Is it that you don't write down the tasks on a piece of paper so you're always rehearsing what you have to do? Your mind share is taken up by so many other things. I don't know what they are. Is it because you're so needed by your friends and you like to be needed? In fact, you need to be needed. <laughs> okay, what are your multitudes? most striking thing about Jesus' prayer life was how he often withdrew to pray, and he withdrew into the wilderness. What is your wilderness? Sometimes our houses and our homes, that's not actually the best place to do it. If they're very busy, very active, we have a lot of people in and out, we have a lot of demands. We have to find a place where we know we won't be interrupted, where we won't be disturbed, and it has to happen if we're going to build a strategic prayer life. Amen. Okay, Jesus modeled a passionate commitment to consistent prayer. To cultivate an intimate relationship with anyone, you must spend time with him or her. And so Jesus would often withdraw from the multitudes, but I think even in himself, you know, sometimes we can withdraw in our hearts just to hear that still, small, quiet voice, and we need to do that within the day. My sister asked me a while ago, she's like, how do you maintain connection with your husband, my youngest sister? How do you do that? Because she sees how busy my husband is. It's like he works about two, different, two jobs or three jobs, and we, we're both busy. How do you do that? And, and it was a good question because I thought, sure, how, how do we manage to maintain some form of connection through the day? And you know what it is? It's like, yes, we have that time in the evening, or we have that time where we connect and we don't waste words, and, and we don't watch a lot of TV. He likes to watch soccer. But, <laughs> but we don't watch a lot of TV. We don't waste a lot of time. And with our time that we have, he's very good at taking it deep very quick. So we don't talk about a lot of stuff that's inconsequential. But you know what else? That's like the time that you have with the Lord in the morning, that time, that time that's when you're in your wilderness, with your, when you're in your secret place. But then you know what? Through the day, I can't always get, get hold of him because he's teaching and he's um, training and stuff like that but when he gets a moment he'll phone me he'll say my love I have a gap I've given them an exercise I've got five minutes quick catch up how are you doing this 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 okay lunchtime he, maybe he can't speak to me or maybe he does like my love I'm feeling peopled out this this and this happened and I have to go right now but five minutes catch up and then so it's constant catching up when we can yes we're busy we all are busy but we try and do the best with what we can and I think we need to be like that with God where we have our time but then we have that touching base and we often withdraw in our hearts into that place, often withdrawing to a place of peace, just to feel that connection with God again, saying, okay, Lord, let me remember what I read this morning in your word. Let me check, you know, am I, am I still on the right? Do you know what I mean? Are you following with me? I would hate it if my relationship with my husband um, consisted of a 5.30 a.m. alarm or a 5 or a 4.30 a.m. alarm and an hour of um, 
shopping list requests and then closure and then he doesn't speak to me again until the same thing the next morning. I would, I would hate that. How about you ladies? Would you like that? CD. <laughs> okay? So I think sometimes we like that with God, but it needs to be a relationship and prayer needs to be two-way communication. Um, how do you best spend time alone with your father? How do you do that? And are you doing that? Jesus says in Revelation 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. All of that is good stuff, hey? All of that is great. Ministry, awesome church. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Could it be that we're doing great things, that we're being obedient to the ministry call in our lives, but we've become so busy and taken up with doing the ministry that we've forgotten our first love? Have you forgotten your first love? How is your relationship with your father this morning? How is your relationship with the Lord? Is it alive? Is it vibrant? Do you hear him speaking to you? Do you wait long enough to hear what he's saying? When you read the word, can you hear his voice speaking to you? Or is it a religious activity, lifeless? Okay? We mustn't forget our first love. We can labor for his name's sake. We can have a thriving ministry. We can have appearance of success. And yet Jesus can still have something against us. We can't afford to be so successful and busy that we forget the Lord of the ministry. Amen. Okay. The third thing that I love about looking at Jesus' life, love about his prayer life, is that he received instructions from his father in prayer. He received instructions. And I think we can learn a lot from this. I'm going to read the portion of scripture because it gives us the context. Mark 1 verse 29 to 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, and this is the same scripture, by the way, sorry, that I read before. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mom-in-law was in bed with fever. Jesus healed her. Do you remember this? It was the first scripture I read. That evening, the people brought um, to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and he ministered to them. Do you remember? The next morning, what did he do? He got up and prayed while it was still dark in a solitary place. Hey, and then it says... So Jesus in the solitary pray, place praying, Simon and all his, and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Your ministry is at the peak, Jesus. Everybody needs you. We need you. And what does Jesus say? Let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so we can preach there. That's why I've come. Where did he get that from? Those are instructions, hey, he knew what he had to do. You know what I I think in church today is that many of us as Christians are needs-driven. We're not purpose-oriented. We're needs-driven. I don't see that in Jesus' life. I mean, here things were really buzzing in terms of ministry, really buzzing in terms of the business of the day, really busy. Jesus was very much in demand. In fact, I'm sure today that is where counselors would say to people, you know what? You are so in demand. Your ministry is so at its peak. You need to be on TV. You need to be on radio. You can't go anywhere. These people need you. That's what it would be like. But what did Jesus say? Um, no thanks. i got to go there. I received my instructions from my father, and that's not what he said to me. He 
got his instructions in prayer. We think it's noble to be led by needs, but it's not noble to be led by needs because we will never be able to meet all the needs around us, no matter how great our view of ourselves is. Often it's an indication of pride. I'm the answer. No, God is the answer. Just go where he wants you to be and he'll be the answer through you. You know, sometimes people think we must start this ministry, we must start that ministry, start this ministry, we must start this ministry, do this, hospital, prisons, women's, men's, this, 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 this. No, you'll just get burnt out. We've got to do what God tells us to do and we're not the answer to everybody for everybody's needs. And the way we get that and those instructions is from our Father in prayer. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be just guessing. I want to know like I know this is what i got to do. So when all the people come and say, no, but we need you here. No, but we need you. You're our answer. No, but we... I can say, you know what? That's why I've come. I've got to do that. Amen. My Father has given me instructions. Do you regularly withdraw to get instructions from your father? Do you remember what, remember we looked at the life of, of David and the example we looked at was the first time uh, in the particular battle we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he said, Lord, shall I go up? And the Lord says, yes, go up. And the second time he inquires again and he says, Lord, shall I go up? And the Lord says, well, do this, change of strategy. But I think many of us, we just, first of all, we just assume we must go up. Second of all, we never inquire to say, well, what strategy should we use? We don't get instructions from our father. It's interesting to me that Jesus understood his time and his season and his purpose. Do you understand what God is doing in your life right now, in this season, what he's doing, and where you need to be positioned in order for him to fulfill that? Because I can't tell you that. Your father tells you that. Your father can tell you that. Yes, I know we submit to those in authority. We submit to our leaders. We can help guide the process. We may have an idea. But it's important that we hear from our father about our times, our seasons, and our purposes. Amen. We need to get instructions from our Father. The fourth one, I hope you're getting this. Jesus' life was filled with prayer. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, during the days, all the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. During the days of Jesus' life on earth. I would love that to be said of me. When I die, I want my father to, to know that, to think that I was a prayer warrior, that during my days I offered up prayers and petitions. And I haven't arrived, but that's what I would love to. And I would hope that many of us would like that too. Because that's where we really affect change. Amen. We affect change in the spirit realm. Like all of the stuff that we were discussing at Ignite, all of the stuff that's been happening, the violence in this area in Centurion. I'm thinking to myself, where's the gap? Where is the breach in the spirit that all of a sudden there are all of these hijackings and shootings around Centurion? Because as a church, we need to rise up and stand in the gap and refuse it. And refuse that that violence happens in our area. But that happens in the spirit realm first, hey? And we've got to be prayerful so we understand how to pray. Okay, I've got a lovely scripture here, Mark 9, verse 14 to 29. And the context to the scripture, I'm going to read most of it. The context to the scripture is that Jesus and um, James, Peter, and John have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other nine, nine disciples have been 
um, down. And Jesus and those three disciples are making their way down to everyone else. It says, when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd and the teachers of the law arguing with them. When the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed and ran to meet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about? Then a man in the crowd answers and tells him, I brought my son possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. And basically the father describes um, what would happen to the son when the demon would manifest. It would seize him, throw him on the ground, he would foam at the mouth, etc. And then he says, I asked your disciples to deliver my child of the spirit, but they couldn't. And then they brought the boy to Jesus and um, Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Then the father says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Then Jesus rebuked the spirit and he says, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit came out. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do that? Remember Mark 6, this is Mark 9, Mark 6, Jesus called his 12 disciples and sent them out. They delivered people of demons and they were healing people left, right and center. So their experience is that they've been delivering people of demons and they're healing people. So it's like, Lord, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Some, some Bible translations say it only comes out by prayer and fasting, but the original two original Greek manuscripts that are thought to be most accurate, it actually doesn't have and fasting, it just has prayer. So Jesus said this kind can only come out by prayer. That's a rebuke, isn't it? Gentle, kind rebuke. This kind only comes out by prayer. What is Jesus saying? You've got to be prayerful for some of these things to happen. You can't just operate in authority of the believer. We have to be in prayer. There must be something in the spirit that demons can actually see. This person is a prayerful person. Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? You know? Are we in prayer? The Robertson's Word picture commentary says... Um, Prayer is what the nine had failed to use. They were powerless because they were prayerless. Their self-complacency spelled defeat. They had too much faith in themselves, too little in Christ. They had trusted to the semi-magical power with which they thought themselves invested. It worked before. They didn't have to pray. Obviously, they didn't have to pray as much. They thought it would work again. So sometimes in our lives, we have to be cognizant of the fact that when I'm not prayerful, certain things don't work like they should. Amen. Something's not working in your life like you know it should. Maybe you're not prayerful enough. Maybe you're not going back to your father enough. John 15 talks about being connected to the vine, abiding in the word. We need to be abiding in the word, abiding in our father, letting him abide in us because he says when that happens, you will ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. We've got to be abiding in the word, submitted to him and actually receive receiving instructions from him. Prayerful, okay? Prayerful. I have a lovely picture here from Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, stay here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be distressed and troubled. And then he says to those three, stay watch, stay here and keep watch. And then he went and he prayed. He prayed to his father. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Then he says to Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Once more he went away and prayed. When he came back, he found them sleeping. <laughs> they didn't know what to say to him. Third time. 
Then Jesus says, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Could it be that if he hadn't come back and woken them up, they would have slept right through that hour? Are some of us sleeping right through our hour? Are we sleeping right through our hour? And we don't understand the times and the seasons that God wants to say something to us, say, you know what, you need to be here, you need to be doing this, and we fast asleep. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity, those who come to God through him, since he is always living to make petition to God and intercede with him and intervene for them. Jesus is ever living to make intercession. Jesus, we meant to be like like Jesus we meant to desire to become more like him right now he's in heaven sitting on the throne making intercession for us I want to be more like that I want to carry his heart more I want to feel what's on his heart I want to stop and ask him Lord what is on your heart for this nation right now and how do I pray my prayers can be an answer can be part of the answer for the violence that's happening on campuses how does he want to use me am I sleeping through this hour does God have to say, well, I wanted to use her, but she's asleep. I wanted to use her, but she's so busy doing what she thinks I want her to do that she's not even available for me to do what I really want to do through her to really affect a change in the nation right now, which is prayer. Some of us, we need to stop being so busy doing stuff and come into the closet where the stuff really happens first. Amen. Amen. Jesus spent, this is the fifth one, Jesus spent prolonged periods in prayer before making major decisions. Prolonged periods in prayer. I love what Matle said this morning, and I said I was going to quote her. She said something that God is not a franchise. He's not a fast food franchise. You know, sometimes our prayers are fast food. Quick in, quick out. Lord bless my day. Boom. And we want fast food from the word. Okay, okay boom. There's a verse. Open it wherever. Uh, Psalm 37 verse 3. I like that one. Okay, and that's our fast. That's our that's our relationship with God. God is not a fast food franchise. Jesus spent prolonged periods in prayer. Um, I'm gonna. There are a number of scriptures, but when Jesus that that are here that are in the notes. If you get in the notes, um, it's listed in th- uh, a number of places. But the context here for the example that I'm going to give you from scripture is Jesus had just had clashes with the Pharisees around the Sabbath. Jesus had clashes around with the the religious leaders because his um, his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath, so they were they were clashes, and the religious leaders were angry. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the Sea of Galilee and he was uh, followed by large crowds of people and at this point Jesus needed to make a very important decision from all of these people that were following him from all of these many followers he needed to choose his disciples who would be with him in his inner circle and I and I ask you a question did he scrutinize CV applicants the applicant CVs did he send all the applicants out for psychological tests did he personally interview all the promising candidates did he rely on some company to do it for him or did he spend an entire night in prayer talking to his father see sometimes I think we rely on natural means instead of yes those things are all good but we have to first come to our father amen when we have to make an important decision whatever it is do we saturate it in prolonged passionate persevering prayer Do we saturate, do we seek the Father's face to hear what he's saying? Or do we just make our decision and ask him for a token blessing on what we decided anyway? 
What do we do? Jesus prayed the whole night before selecting the 12 he designated apostles. And I have this really interesting um, example. It's a letter. It's a hypothetical letter written to Jesus, the son of Joseph, um, from a Jordan management consultants whom, in theory, he, rec- he, he paid to help him with the selection of his 12 apostles. So this is what Jordan management consultants wrote to Jesus. Dear sir, thank you for submitting your resume of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your organization. All of them have taken a battery of tests and we have not only run through the results with our computer, um, through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included and you'll want to study each one of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional charge. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. (laughs) They do not have team concept, and we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capacity. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no quality of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude, which would tend to undermine morale. We felt that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. You know, he was a tax collector. James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. And that's true, because sometimes we can look in the natural, and we see things the way they are, but God looks and he sees something else, and that's why we need God's perspective. Amen. So Jesus spent prolonged periods in prayer before making major decisions. Sixthly, Jesus used the word of God in warfare. He used the word of God in warfare. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Did Jesus say, I rebuke you, devil, get out of here, I bind you and your demons go back to hell. I... Did he do all of that? What did he do? He just used the word of God. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll be yours. Did Jesus say, oh, I rebuke you, I bind you, all of that stuff? No. What did he say? It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
The devil led him to Jerusalem and he stood on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now the devil is caught on. Now he's using the word of God too. For it is written, uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and keep you and they will lift you up so you don't strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said, it do not put the, the word, it is written, it, it, is, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't that interesting? Jesus used the word of God. These are all scriptures he quotes from Deuteronomy. Jesus used the word of God when the devil came against him. And he understood the word of God and he knew when the enemy was using it incorrectly. Because sometimes we listen to a preacher or sometimes the enemy comes and whispers a word and it's out of context and that's not what the original word was saying. But we are ignorant and we eat it. Yes, that says that in the Bible. No, well, you must look at the context. Is that what it was meaning? Amen. Jesus was tempted. The Greek word tempt means test in a good or bad sense. So the Holy God doesn't tempt. James says that God doesn't tempt. So God didn't tempt him, but the Holy Spirit led him to a point where he could be tempted. And that Greek word tempt means to test. Means to test. So God allowed him to be tested. God allows people to be tested to strengthen their character. The living... Um, application study Bible says a person has not shown true obedience if he or she has never had the opportunity to disobey. It's like submission is tested in disagreement. It's easy to submit when you agree. Okay? So the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to prove and test his genuine character. And in this place of testing, of temptation, and ultimately of warfare, Jesus' weapon of choice was the Word of God. It was the Word of God. And he could discern between correct and incorrect use. Now, if Jesus, who was the Son of God, needed to be so schooled in the Word of God and needed to know scriptures and have them at his fingertips in his heart, how much more do you and I? How much more do you and I? When you have a situation come before you, do you now need to look, uh, let me get my concordance, uh, let me just check for any scripture, any scripture on fear, okay, I'm feeling afraid, any scripture, uh, uh, or is there that scripture in your heart, perfect love casts out fear. I have not given you a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of sound mind. You know, in Ephesians it says, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. So we put on the armor now, so that when the day of evil comes, we can stand. We can't wait until the day of evil comes, and now we start suddenly putting on our armor and getting our word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Amen. We have to prepare beforehand. And in Ephesians 6, it says that, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, if you go and you read in Ephesians 6, you will see that out of all the armor that we told to put on, the sword is the only offensive piece of armor, if it's an armor. It's the only offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is our offensive weapon in warfare. So when we're going through stuff, I want to encourage you, pick up your sword and fight. Pick up the word of God and use it. It's the offensive weapon that you've been given. Jesus did it. Jesus modeled it. Amen. Okay, next point. Jesus' prayer life aroused the desire for prayer among the disciples. Luke 11 verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass as he was praying, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. When people hear you praying, 
Does it arouse? Is there something stirred in their hearts? Would you teach me to pray? You know something. You have a relationship with your father that I want. I want what you've got. Teach me to pray. How do you pray like that? I will always want there to be something in my heart. Teach me to pray. I want to learn more how to pray. I want to walk closer with my father. I've never arrived, but I also would love my prayer life to, or my relationship with the Lord to inspire other people in prayer. Amen. Does your prayer life inspire those around you? Next point, Jesus included others in times of prayer. Luke 9, 28 to 29, it came to pass that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Do you pray with other people? It's important. Do you know the Bible says that one can put a thousand to flight, two can send the legions fleeing. There's something that happens in the agreement between a co- in a corporate prayer meeting that you can't do on your own. No matter how powerful you think your prayer life is, you can't do it on your own. We need to be in corporate prayer. Amen. There are things that we can affect and change over this nation corporately that I can't do on my own. And I understand that. Do you understand that? Are you in corporate prayer? Do you pray in your small groups? Do you pray in little triplets? We were talking about triplets the other week, forming a small group of people, three or so or two, and getting together and praying for each other and praying for things. It's powerful. Do you come to Ignite? Be in corporate prayer times. It's powerful. And we learn from each other. And we hear what God is saying to the church. Amen. Jesus prayed on key occasions. This is my last point. Jesus prayed on key occasions. He prayed in the context of his baptism. Luke 3, he prayed on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9. He prayed prior to his leaving the earth, John 17. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. He prayed on the cross, Matthew 27. Jesus prayed. He prayed in the morning. His whole life was marked by prayer, and he prayed in key occasions. Do you include prayer in your key occasions, your birthdays? The things that you organize where you have unsaved people coming to, do you also include prayer? Jesus did. Jesus included prayer in key, at key moments. I want us to do that. When we have birthday parties for our kids, when we have every opportunity, when there's a gathering, my family, some of my family members are not yet saved. They're pre-Christians. Some of them. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. When we're in specific settings where those people are organizing parties and dinners, whatever, they always will say, uh, Paul, please will you pray? Will you say grace for us? I like that. I like that. They're including God in it, even though they don't necessarily yet believe. (laughs) Okay? Let's do that. Let's include prayer on key occasions. Okay? So, in summary, Jesus liked to pray in solitude early in the morning. Let's try and make that a thing. Let's try and do it. I know it's difficult. If I go to bed late, I find it difficult to wake up and stay awake. I really do, because I'm naturally a morning person. I'm not a late night person. But let's try to get up early and go to bed early enough so we can wake up early. Jesus did it. He woke up early. He went to a solitary place place, and he prayed. He often withdrew from the multitudes to spend time with his father. We spoke about what are your multitudes? What are the things that pull you away from that, that precious time? Okay. Jesus received his instructions from his father. We need to receive instructions, not be needs-oriented, but purpose-oriented, according to what our Father has told us. Jesus' whole life was filled with prayer. He spent prolonged periods in prayer before making decisions. He used the Word of God in warfare. His prayer life was so powerful, and he had such an intimate relationship with his Father that it aroused a desire in those around him to pray. 
to walk like he walked. He included others in times of prayer and he prayed on key occasions. So I'm sure you get the gist of what I've been saying. Jesus was prayerful. Amen. He prayed at the beginning of the day and he did his ministry. But his ministry, he didn't rely only on that for his relationship with God. He walked as a prayerful person in tune with God. And that's what I want for, for me and for us as a church.